MSW Media. Hi, I'm Harry Littman, host of Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. Each Monday, I'm joined by a slate of Fed's favorites and new voices to break down the headlines and give the insider's view of what's going on in Washington and beyond, plus sidebars explaining important legal concepts read by your favorite celebrities. Find Talking Feds wherever you get your podcasts. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Clean Up on Aisle 45. This is episode 90. It's Wednesday, October 5th. And joining me today, because Andrew is in Italy, like just, you know, having a wonderful time uh, on his vacation, is Pete Strzok. Hey, Pete, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. I, like you, am not in Italy, but we will uh, <laughs> make do with Northern Virginia and Southern California, which is almost like Italy in its own way, in their own way. Yeah, I think if you combine them, it's still probably nothing like Italy, but... <laughs> but no, not at all. <laughs> but, here, but here we are. Um, and, and yeah, I appreciate you holding down the fort with me this week. And the reason I wanted to bring you in is because you are an expert in counterintelligence and espionage. And by the way, another person named Anna, uh, who, who <laughs> from Russia, was arrested last week uh, on espionage charges. I don't know what it is with Anna's. Um, but you, I think you have a, a little bit of experience with uh, Russian spies named Anna. So I thought that was an interesting little tidbit. Yeah, that was... There's a, that Last week was busy. There was a lot going on. There was the... Uh... The couple, there was also um, some announcements made about some old Chinese uh, economic espionage cases. I think somebody was sentenced or is due to be sentenced. And then, of course, there was the third thing, which I'm probably forgetting, which is also a... Uh, oh, like Deripaska. Yeah, well, Deripaska for sure. And in addition to Deripaska, I want to say there was somebody else who was arrested talking to a an FBI agent he believed to be a foreign intelligence officer in addition to the, the couple. Um, but my mind is suddenly drawing a blank. But there was a lot going on. Yeah, a lot in espionage, which I thought was really interesting timing. Like, uh, I don't know, somebody like woke up the espionage monster and now all of a sudden we've got all these cases going on. But I, you know, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, you know, because we've been following very closely here on Clean Up on All 45, the whole Mar-a-Lago document uh, debacle. And uh, we saw that recently the Department of Justice uh, put forward a pretty succinct motion for an expedited briefing schedule to the 11th Circuit for their full appeal. And their basic, what they're sort of putting forth here is like, look, 
we we really needed to have that stay lifted on the classified documents because of national security risks and that being inextricably linked to uh, a criminal investigation. But also, you know, these other 11,000 documents are still very important to our criminal investigation, and we're the executive branch, and that is one of the important jobs of the executive is is criminal investigations, and those usually outweigh any privilege claims. And so we're, you know, we're going to... Uh, appeal the entire thing, which they put a notice to appeal the entire, Cannon's entire thing earlier on, but they really wanted to get the, the classified document stuff settled, which they did. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit first about why, well, let's let's talk about why the non-classified documents, because Brandon Van Grack, you know, former um, colleague on the, on the Mueller investigation and, and then ended up uh, heading up the FARA unit briefly, at the Department of Justice, now back in private practice, said, look, AG, it's not irrelevant. These non-classified uh, documents aren't irrelevant to the investigation. And uh, because they, you know, the the fact that they were commingled with these classified documents uh, is important to the criminal investigation, which is an executive branch function and can often outweigh privilege claims. So you've done, you've handled this kind of investigation before. Can you talk a little bit about why the non-classified documents being commingled with the classified documents, particularly like in his office or in his desk drawers, have, you know, need to be criminally investigated for things like 2071 concealment, obstruction, and uh, 793 espionage? Um, sure. So there are a lot of reasons. I mean, the easiest way to maybe talk about this is to start at a very granular level and talk about the investigative reasons uh, DOJ would and the FBI would want access potentially to all those documents. And then I think there's a broader strategic long-term uh, decision that's going on here. And we can talk about that at the end. But, you know, as, as you said, as Brandon said, there is whether or not, you know, it is particularly interesting because they're commingled, but even if they weren't, it's important to remember that there were several, there are three charges listed. Um, in one was dealing with the classified information, two were not. One was dealing with obstruction, the other was, you know, illegally essentially maintaining a record that he wasn't entitled to have. But those two things, those latter two criminal charges have nothing to do with classified information one way or the other. And what is important, you know, the classified documents presumably, except for maybe the ones where he may have written something on it, those aren't his thoughts, those aren't his writing, those don't speak to his state of mind. All those are something that the U.S. intelligence community or U.S. government has produced that's classified that he had. What's interesting, though, and you know, we don't know what's in the unclassified material, but I'll lay out a bunch of potential hypotheticals, which hopefully will illustrate to your listener why those might be really relevant to investigators. Say in that batch of unclassified material, there's a folder that's labeled material to give to Rudy to give to Durkacz right? That would indicate that, you know, something that would give an idea why Trump was holding on to those classified documents. It's one thing to sit there and say, well, you know, these documents exist in the abstract, but we have yet to hear, I mean, we've heard no explanation from Trump, no explanation from his attorneys, why on earth he wanted to keep it. But if he had it in the context of files having to do with Rudy or files having to do with MBS or Saudi Arabia or files having to do with something for a business deal in the golf course that he wants to open or a new Trump property somewhere in Azerbaijan, it might give you an idea of the context of why he was holding on to those documents. The other thing, independent of the documents themselves, perhaps there are communications between him and his attorneys, between him and his staff saying, you know, on the one hand, don't tell the government that I have these documents. Feel free to let the government in the storage room, but please don't tell them about anything that's in my office. Things to his attorney saying, just do what you have to do to get them out of my hair. 
tell them I don't have any. I haven't really looked, but tell them that I have. There are any number of communications that he might have had, either with his attorneys or non-attorneys, that would speak to his knowledge of, you know, things like, hey, of course I never declassified these. They're still classified, but I'm going to say that they that I did declassify them. Or gosh, I might be in trouble. I didn't know that I should have declassified them. What can I do now? There are any number of things in there that, while unclassified, would be very, very relevant in terms of understanding his state of mind about what he knew, what he didn't knew, why he was trying to conceal, whether he was trying to encourage others to conceal or obstruct the FBI's investigation. And even if, even if some of these were with his attorneys, there's something called a crime fraud exception that you don't get to sit there and say, anything I say to my attorneys, no matter what, is privileged and you can't ever see it. If you're engaged in a criminal act with your attorney, there's something called a crime fraud exception where the government, you know, meeting a certain threshold of proof can get that information and essentially that pierces privilege, that they can use it. So all these things go to very important elements of each of the crimes that if you're going to prove that in a court of law, you're going to have to prove some of these things separate and distinct from just, oh, this document was appropriately classified. So all those are examples. I think there's a broader issue here. And I think DOJ started very narrowly with just wanting the classified documents back, saw that Deary, the special master, was you know moving ahead with a, a very reasonable, um, not rapid, but a very sort of deliberate, um, meaningful pace to get this out of the way. And then Cannon steps in and undoes all this and throws all kinds of sand in the gears and pushes the schedule way into the next year. And I think DOJ looked at that and said, okay, this is this is too much. This is not something, not only in this case, we don't want precedent set. We don't want every single high level, any defendant sitting there saying, I want a special master. I want to delay this for months and months and months. And that this judge, you know, in my opinion, clearly abusing her discretion, clearly well outside of her role of a U.S. District Court judge is doing something that DOJ wants to send a clear message through appeal this isn't something acceptable. So I think there's also a broader strategic thing going on uh, as well. And that's why I think, I don't know that DOJ envisioned this expedited um, appeal until Cannon sort of mucked around with Deary's process and flow. And it was only after that that you saw the government step in and file this appeal. Yeah, well, I mean, she even went back on her original briefing schedule, which was supposed to be finished by, uh, I think, in her initial order, November 30th. But then again, she when the amended plan came out. She pushed it back to December 16th. And yeah, with the broader, you know, with the broader appeal here, they're, I mean, they're really going to go after jurisdiction here. They're going to argue that there was no equitable jurisdiction because, as they say, you cannot have equitable jurisdiction over inequitable behavior or acts. Um, and, you know, that's when I use the whole example of that, you know, that we've all seen on America's Dumbest Criminals or Cops or whatever, where the lady tries to do a crack deal with a guy and she and he rips her off and so she goes to she flags down some police officers and says hey help me get my money back and that's that's inequitable behavior and you can't you know we can't no i'm sorry we can't help enforce a law that you broke now with regards to the lawyers and the crime fraud exception i think what's interesting here and carol lenig and dozy and the rest put out in the washington post that she's lawyered up we knew that but that she's also willing to cooperate um, with with the Department of Justice. And what's interesting about Christina Bob is she was also in the Willard uh, on, on January 5th, and she was on a phone call to try to coordinate the fraudulent electors. So she's got her hands in a lot of stuff. But the thing about the crime fraud exception with her 
is that she went on television and said she was not a lawyer in the documents case. She was just a documents custodian. So she openly obliterated an attorney-client relationship with Donald Trump and will not be able to claim at all attorney-client privilege, though she might try some executive privilege stuff. Does the crime fraud exception apply to executive privilege? I don't know. That's a good question. I, I, I can't. I can't imagine it would. That seems to be the whole, the, the whole my understanding of the, the theory and the intent underneath crime fraud piercing any sort of privilege that it would, that it would apply to executive privilege in, in, in a similar way that it would to attorney-client privilege. But I'm not, I'm not the right person to ask about that. But I mean, it seems to me non, like, you know, Nixon, Nixon couldn't sit there and claim executive privilege over the Watergate tapes, you know, that, that were, you know, evidence of, of the break-in and of other crimes. Yeah, but I, th- I think in that case... I think in that case, the decision was based on the fact that the uh, criminal investigation took precedent over an executive privilege claim, which is kind of a sort of backdoor around into crime fraud exception, Um, you know, uh, because we're criminally investigating something. But, you know, we'll see what have you ever had a case where somebody wrote personal notes on a classified document and therefore magically made it a personal document? No, because I think that that that's a this is what makes this so unique, right? I mean, this is what there there are privileges that attach to the executive to the president that don't exist with you know if you're secretary of some some department in the U.S. or some high ranking you know CIA director or something like that, you don't have that same sort of executive privilege claim. Um, but then they would become presidential so, records, wouldn't they? Uh, which are still right, right. Yeah. They're still right. Right, right, and so some of it is, you know, I, he 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 can't, you know, except for Judge Cannon keeps giving him his cake and letting him eat it too. You can't sit there and say, on the one hand, that you know these are my notes, and therefore there's an executive privilege in there because then they do become, I think, by all accounts, a presidential record. So it, it, you, it's not, it, it isn't something, you know, if he had taken a document and wrote a note to Patsy Baloney saying, hey, you know, what do you think about this, this, and this? And then send it to the White House Counsel's office. Argue, and I, there's no indication something, anything like that exists. That would be the closest thing I could sit there and say, okay, well, maybe that's some sort of, you know, in addition to just presidential privilege, there's some sort of potentially, you know, attorney sort of counsel deliberative privilege in there. But I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not the right person to sort of unpack whether or not a, you know, any sort of presidential privilege, executive privilege could be pierced by a crime fraud exception. Yeah. And it's, yeah, there, I mean, there's just so many novel concepts going on with this case because we're talking about a former president who was stealing and concealing and lying about having documents. We've, we've really never had anything like this because, <laughs> you know, as the DOJ argued, even if these are just presidential records, you do get access to them, but you do not have possessory ownership of them. And you also can't lie about, I mean, it's just it. everything that seems so obvious and clear to us. He, he has this way of coming in and sort of mucking it up, you know, uh, flooding the zone with shit, as it were, per, you know, Steve Bannon, to to kind of confuse the, the issue. And he, I don't know, he gets into these legal weeds that make no sense that confuse people and when we should just be looking at the big picture like you took them you lied about having them you didn't say they were declassified when you handed a red well double wrapped envelope over uh that's not how you treat declassified documents um so you know i'm wondering if he's saying well those are the ones i didn't declassify 
and I handed them over. All the rest I declare. You know, like, I don't know what, what his, I mean, all he can do is delay. It's, and it's all in bad faith. It's all in bad faith. There's nothing there that is like a legitimate reason that he's given. You know, it, it is all a lie. It is all, I think, you know, a, a, a means to he got caught um, doing something he shouldn't have done and he's trying to weasel out of it. Then it's like, you know, everything else he tends to do, he just mucks around. And it's like if you try and listen to like some or watch some of these PowerPoint presentations that Mike Lindell gives about how the vote was stolen, it's it's all argle bargle. It just none of it. It doesn't make sense. And if you try and like, okay, let me try and follow along what he's saying. It it makes no sense. It is just this incoherent rambling of word salad that has no basis in law, has no basis really in fact. But because he's like, well, he's the former president. This is what he's trying to explain himself. You try and follow along, and it's all bullshit. It, it really is, and it, it it this all these filings create this this overlay of you know both sort of legal propriety because they're legal words, <laughs> and because they're legal words, they also can get confusing to a non-attorney. So it is has that double effect of like I don't really understand it, and oh, it's a lawyer saying it, so it probably might be more credible than something coming out of Trump's mouth. So, but it's all designed to obscure the truth, and that's that he took the shit that he shouldn't have taken. Yeah, I mean, it kind of reminds me of what and, we learned in the in the seditious conspiracy Oath Keepers trial this morning, their defense. Well, we, we learned it a little bit earlier with their pre-filing, um, pre-trial filings, but they're saying, hey, everything we did was legal. We stashed our weapons in Virginia. We didn't bring them in to D.C. We were waiting for Donald to uh, use the Insurrection Act to call us up as a militia. And we are a legit militia under the, you know, under the law or the Constitution. And so everything we did was legal. And therefore, we can't be possibly guilty of seditious conspiracy. And and I again, I feel like that's using deceptive legal language to to argue something that's blatantly obvious. I mean, the Department of Justice has brought, what, like five seditious conspiracy cases in the last 80 years. They've won like one of them or two of them maybe. I mean, they rarely bring this charge. This is a, a – Merrick Garland is not a – he's an institutionalist, and I, I bet it took him a minute. I mean, he when Sherwin – when Mike Sherwin wanted to bring seditious conspiracy against the Oath Keepers, Garland was like, no, no, he turned him down. But when, you know, the, the new U.S. attorney got in there and got the evidence and got the the right stuff together, came back after Sherwin went on 60 Minutes and said, we're, you know, we're thinking about seditious conspiracy charges, almost blew the whole case. Um, the, the new U.S. attorney in D.C. buttoned it up and brought it back to Garland and said, look, this is inequivocally seditious conspiracy. And, and Garland had to I'm sure Garland had to OK that uh, and. and I, I just don't see in any world that he would if they didn't think they had a, an airtight case here. I, I hope so. I think that's right. I think, you know, there's no telling where a jury ultimately is going to land. I mean, I think the goal of the of the prosecution will be to say it's not that complicated. Look at what they did. Look at the video of what happened and d d just believe your eyes and believe the evidence when the defense is going to try and muddle it all up with, you know, the insurrection act, which I don't know how that necessarily would give the oath keepers or anybody else authority to bring, you know, guns and weapons into DC, but you know, they're going to try and throw everything out there to try and at a, if they can confuse one juror enough to sit there and say, well, I don't know, then you've got, you know, you, you, you either deadlock the jury and you get a mistrial or, or they're acquitted. So they, they just need to get a juror to, 
you know, buy into whatever crazy nonsense. And it will be, you know, it's like, again, all these folks, it's like arguing with sovereign citizens. Mm -hmm. You know, they've got these false writs and they're going to do, you know, we're going to put a lien on your house and they're going to affect the citizen's arrest. And it's all this like, it, 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 it's this made up universe that, you know, is collides into the real justice system. And I hope, like has happened so many times, that when this kind of land of make-believe law, you know, the, the, the pony unicorn law of Magaland hits the reality of the U.S. justice system that it, like it has so many times, it just kind of crumbles because it's all made up. It just, it, there, there's no factual, logical basis for it. And, you know, thank God those sorts of things have not survived in our justice system. Yeah, and I think it's important to note, too, that the Oath Keepers are on the hook for multiple other charges, including obstructing an official proceeding, which has been won by injury trials 100% of the time when it's brought. They've got a lot of guilty pleas. They've secured a lot of guilty pleas on on that. It carries the same max sentence as seditious conspiracy. Um, so it could we could see a thing where a jury might be like, well, you know, they did, you know, maybe not seditious conspiracy, but these other charges, um, it, 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 juries can do that. They don't have to say all or none. Um, so we will see what happens in that trial. It's expected to last three to four weeks. But back to the canon thing. Uh, tapes, audio tapes were released today from Maggie Haberman, who's had them for a year and a half, of Donald Trump admitting on tape that he took, for example, he said the Kim Jong-un letters. And kept them at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, that's a crime. And uh, he and we have him on tape admitting to it. And if that letter... Now, here's my question. That's a non-classified thing. If that non-classified document was commingled with classified documents, and he admitted to having and taking the Kim Jong-un letter... Does that sort of give credence to him taking the classified documents as well? I mean, is that kind of why these non-classified documents are so important? Sure, that's one of the reasons. Sure, I mean, one of the reasons is absolutely. There are just so many. You know, I can I can sit here and come up with with dozens of hypotheticals, and that that certainly is one of them, right? That if he is admitting to saying, you know, I kept these things for this reason, and then you know, whatever there was like some leather bound volume. I've seen some reporting that was in the in the office that seemed to be it's like his little you know holy of holies. But you know, whatever was in there, if there were some documents where he said clearly, yes, I'm keeping these seventeen things because you know they're all important in some way, and of those seventeen, five are classified, twelve are unclassified. It it you know, and those 12 speak to why he was keeping it, it conveys sort of knowledge and selection and reasons for why he'd want to keep it. So yes, for, for sure, that's one of those reasons. And, you know, the flip side is, you know, considerably there could be an instance where, you know, whatever that day's events where he was just shoving shit in a box and there was no rhyme or reason to it, it might be a little bit mitigating saying, well, look, I didn't really select any of this. This was just you know, the documents from June 15th of 2019, and I just shoved it all in the box without really paying attention to what was in there. So it could cut both ways. I don't, I don't think, I mean, I think the likelihood that there is, are things that are inculpatory, things that are very relevant to the investigation, I'm almost certain there are multiple examples of that in the unclassified material. But yes, for sure that, you know, things he has said about the unclassified stuff is going to inform his state of mind about the classified stuff that he was keeping as well. Now, what about some in, in, in the DOJ, you know, as instructed, did their did their homework and put together a more detailed inventory of what they took on August 8th. 
And and it matches pretty well with their first in inventory. A couple of changes. But I noticed in both inventories, they, there's a couple of folders that say return to military liaison or return to Pentagon or return to something, so-and-so. What what are those? Do are, are do some classified documents come in folders with instructions on them like that to 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 make sure the chain of custody is is followed? I I, I don't think I've ever heard of any uh, kind of a direction on a folder I, like that. Yeah, I think that depends on the administration and how they route information into and out of the Oval Office or up to the residence. And I can envision a scenario where he was, you know, in addition to the PDB, if he had some sort of read folder that somebody from the situation room that they might use a military officer or an aide to attache to bring him material and to bring it back. But that's something that, you know, you'd, you'd probably have to speak to somebody who is in sort of the admin side of the White House operations to give you a rundown of like what that was and, and how they manage that flow. But I, I think... I'm wondering too if, if they like put those instructions on there because he famously just kept shit and didn't follow directions. That's a question I haven't heard really asked by anybody in a position to ask it. And maybe one of the intel committees will do it. But like at some point early on, everybody in the White House knew that Trump was a record keeping disaster, right? Early on, like from the, yeah, I fired Comey and he's sitting there telling Lavrov about a great, you know, weight being lifted and he's sharing allegedly, you know, foreign, friendly, foreign allied classified information with him early in the presidency, like within days of the beginning of the presidency, people understood this guy was a classified information handling disaster, right? Everybody knew it. And so why did not somebody, way before we ever get to Mark Meadows, when we have, quote unquote, you know, reasonable, competent chiefs of staff, Rents, Priebus, and Kelly, and you know, whoever else was in the role, why did not somebody or somebody on the intelligence community side of things say, hey, look, we need a very rigorous classified document flow management process, right? So that before anything touches Trump, we have a very detailed list of what is given to him. And then when it comes out, we line it up and check off what either we got back or what we didn't get back. Now, we're not going to be able to go to the man and say, hey, sir, look, you, you left these five things out. We want them. But at a minimum, there would be some fucking record out there that would sit there and say, here is the body of material that was given to Trump and not given back. Why? Who? Because all of these people carrying it in all have a history of handling extraordinary, extraordinarily sensitive classified information. All of them have signed all the non-disclosure agreements. All of them have taken polygraphs. All of them have been sworn for the very sensitive stuff, gone through all kinds of extra hoops. All of them know how sensitive it is. And every single time, now apparently hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, based on what's been seized, stuff never came out that went in. Didn't anybody, anybody say, hey, we need to start keeping a log of this. Well, I think we have. Uh, I think we have some burrowed employees, uh, Patel, for example, at the Pentagon. Um, he wanted to put him. Uh, I put. He wanted to put Michael Ellis over in the NSA. Uh, I think he had people in these agencies that would bring him this stuff and not keep a record of where it went. Honestly, that's. I mean, I'm. Of course, we're in, we're in speculation land now. But and I also that's why I asked maybe this, uh, you know, return to Pentagon uh, instructions were, you know, were placed on some of these things uh, that and maybe they don't normally do that. But, you know, they had to say, well, we need to remind him that he can't keep this or that when he's done with it, it has to be returned. But why there wouldn't be a log? Why? Or, if, you know, maybe there is. 
maybe there are people in the intelligence uh, community, career prosecutors, that know about this stuff, and there are logs, and there are things missing, and that's how they knew things were missing. But it, it you know, they didn't really do anything at the Department of Justice until the National Archives stepped in and said, "Hey, we got these fifteen boxes back, and there were classified documents in it." That shouldn't have been a surprise, but it seems like it was. Right. Agreed. Yeah. So that's frightening. Um, given, you know, I've, I've handled some top secret documents. You've handled tons, uh, and, and you and I know the, the, the rigor that goes into reviewing, handling, uh, guarding sometimes those documents, uh, and keeping track of them. So it's, it's, it's very confusing to me as to why in May, the National Archives came to the FBI and said, hey, we found these. And the FBI went, whoa, we didn't even realize they were gone. Like, like how did I don't I don't understand how they how those kinds of things flew under the radar. Are there here? I have a classified documents question for you. Are there safeguards and classified documents that prevent them from being copied or photographed? Uh, I've, I've been wondering about this back in my day. No, you could copy anything. But I'm wondering if there's some new Kind of, you know how banks have watermarks on checks and stuff. Is there something in, in place like that with super classified documents? I, I think it depends on a lot of things. Um, yeah, and I don't want I don't want to get into too much discussion of it. I would say that you know what happens in the White House is going to be very different from what happens in most intelligence community agencies, and so you know the issue would be how you whatever you do to track it, whether something's printed, how it's printed, controls that may or may not be obvious. I don't know what happens in the context of when it goes to the president. And so whatever things might exist, I think, are not going to potentially be as effective or available. Ah, I see. It's a secret. Okay, that's fine. Uh, uh, Because, you know, I was wondering about the, in the White House National Security Council, there's the NICE, the NICE system, uh, where they, you know, where they, Michael Ellis, the lawyer, shoved the uh, Zelensky transcript uh, to keep fewer eyes on it. And there were, you know, almost half a dozen to a dozen Putin phone calls that might have ended up in there. I'm wondering about all that and, and who has access to that now and if they're looking at it even or if it's kind of like oh let's just move forward you know it just feels weird yeah i don't that's a good question that was a you know a thing that was interesting is like what sort of records you know a did people go in at the end of the administration and destroy all that you know eisenberg and he uh was on doing a lot of that movement and directing to be placed in that system now there there's a lot of really really sensitive information that goes on that system and the question would be everything from you know the transcript of the call with Zelensky, anything with putin all the you know the translator notes that trump ordered that you know his translator turn over all those things you know where did they go and were they maintained or were they destroyed you know who did anybody go back and look at that from the perspective of you know setting aside you know, he's the chief executive, however crazy he might view his role in the U.S. national security, just to look and see if there's any crime there. I don't know. And do they still exist? Yeah, I feel like yeah. I feel like if I were in an intelligence agency, I would day one be like, all right, inventory of everything we know we're supposed to have now. Go now. Um, but, but I have no idea how that works. And I don't know. I don't know what it looks like. Um, there's just so much. Uh, that I feel like, and you know, this is a government, you know, I worked for the government for a very long time. We know how things can fall through the cracks and get lost. And I just, I hate to think of that yeah. in, in these top, these super classified, this, you know, this intelligence. 
you know, and the funny thing is like, ironically, you know, in the, it might've gotten like many other things just overwhelmed by the kind of flow and course of events and nobody has the time or resources to look back. But because you have this maintenance of classified information at Mar-a-Lago and potentially elsewhere might cause people to then go in and start asking questions that otherwise might've got just kind of left in the dust of the past. But now, you know, if somebody says, okay, well, you know, we do, we have an issue with records, so let's go into the NSC system and figure out if there are records in there and go through and take a closer look at it. Um, who knows? I mean, that would, as I would want to know that as an investigator, but I don't know where, you know, the scope of what the investigation is or where they're looking or what NARA may or may not be doing in the context of asking for things to get turned yeah. over. Yeah. And I mean, you know, with. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said... Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. You know, within the government, there are audits we can run that can be referred to uh, the Department of Justice if if malfeasance is found. You don't have to, you don't have to open a full on criminal investigation to to find out if some stuff is missing. Um, we there's steps. Well, you know, we'll see we'll see what happens with all this. But uh, back to this appeal, and it you know what's interesting to me is that I think that the government was very reasonable. They said we would like. October 14th for us to file our full appeal. And then November 4th, we would like a response uh, from from Donald. And then November 11th, we'll reply. They really truncated their own reply times and only shaved, I think, nine days off of, of, of Donald's. And then they said, as far as oral arguments, we'll let the court set the matter. 
at its earliest convenience, whether that be the first available calendar after the end of the expedited briefing schedule or through a special sitting. But they didn't put a date on it. But then the Trump team comes back and says, what do you mean you're only going to give us 21 days? All right, you can have your till the 14th. We want our full 30 days. And then you can have another seven days if you want. Uh, so that would be a November 20th. It would push it back nine days because they want their full 30 days to reply, which, you know, I think probably reasonably they could get just because that's the general rule is you have 30 days. Um, but, the, you know, the DOJ has a very good argument that, that we need these sooner rather than later. And this is, uh, you know, our executive stuff. Uh, this is a, with regards to the non-classified documents. But then they they argue, the Trump team argues, but we don't think oral arguments should happen until next year, January. Uh, yeah, and that, you know, right. because, well, <laughs> and you can feel the push and pull because Kai's is actually on this has signed this, and he was sort of signed like yeah, and trusty. Just it's it's only those two guys and trusty. None of the other kind of weirdos. But you could you could feel or, the guys parts, and you could feel the trusty parts. Like in one footnote, uh, and this is totally trusty. We just want you to know we still think that the DOJ and the FBI are fucked up tricksters, and so you know, please refer to what we think in our uh, you know original what reply to the motion for a stay or whatever back in you know back in the canon times. We just want to let you know we still feel that way. Uh, and Kai's was probably like, can we not say it all and spell it out? Can we just refer to our a previous filing, you know, so that we don't look like assholes here? Uh, but the, what was funny was was the to the reason for January was, look, it'll be November 20th. And then you got Thanksgiving and then, you know, December, where the government doesn't Nobody do any does work. anything in December. Right? So January is reasonable. <laughs> we think that's reasonable. And um yeah, we just want to wait until the next Congress gets sworn in is what they want. <laughs> and exactly. And then trusty comes back in, uh, or what seems very uh, trusty-esque. And let me see if I can find the paragraph here. Um, the government can't possibly be prejudiced if this appeal is not expedited and Trump is afforded a few extra days. Additionally, Trump respectfully requests oral arguments um, be completed in, the, you know, with the rules of the court. And finally, and here's the, here's where, here's where trusty, uh, and I call it the trusty stank. He says, finally, <laughs> the extraordinary circumstances herein presented an investigation of the 45th president by the administration of his political rival would countenance against any rush to judgment. Indeed, the public interest is served best by transparent, thorough consideration of all the issues. So he's actually saying the public interest is in favor of delay rather than getting these documents back for an investigation. Give me a break. But the public interest, the, the, there's no, and they're hanging this all on this nonsense thing about, oh, it's the president, the first time ever being, uh, you know, investigated by his rival. And it's so, you know, there, there's no public interest in investigating crime. Well, and that hints at malfeasance, you know, that hints at like, it's a political hit job, which it is not. And that drives me bananas. Right. Right. Yeah. I was looking. I, yes, I agree. I, it's part to. You can say fuck on this show. Yeah, no, I know. I've already, I've already sworn. I don't need to modulate, modulate my the the um, <laughs> frequency of it, so it's more effective. It's more impactful. I see. I see. Right. So yeah. The, the, yeah. Yeah. So I, but I don't. I, I can't imagine that the circuit would let this lay until that long. Um, there's three perfectly good working weeks in December to have a one or two day oral argument. 
and we're in the beginning of October. So that's, you know, two months away from that. Um, so yeah, I think we'll, I think we'll see something before then. And I anticipate could even see, yeah. could even see something between in that last week of November, that week before, uh, Thanksgiving, which is at the end of November, um, feasibly if they have an open calendar or do, uh, you know, what the DOJ said, a sitting, a special sitting. Uh, but you know, I got to say reading the 11th circuit's last decision, I don't think they're taking any shit from the Trump team on this, honestly. And these, and you know, these are two, two of these are Trump appointees, but they have, the, you know, supreme executive thing in their head, these conservative uh, courts. Um, and, and I think that that's, I think that I'm, I'm, I'm happy the way the DOJ has posed these arguments in that light. Do you know what I mean? I, they're really speaking to yes. the 11th circuit. Yeah. And they have to, I mean, it's written, there's a different way. It's interesting. You write, you know, I'm not, haven't dealt much with appellate law, there have been a couple of cases that have moved up to the circuit court and one, one or two, one that touched on the Supreme Court, but it's a very different way of writing and you get different attorneys at DOJ. Like you won't get typically AUSAs when it moves to the circuit court of appeals and certainly up to the Supreme Court. That's where you get, you know, LC and the office of solicitor general writing it. And it is a very different way of writing. It's a very different argument. You're not arguing facts. You're arguing sort of concept of how the facts, the established facts apply to the law. So you don't get a lot of like argument about what happened. It's more argument about the way the law has been applied or not applied. So it's just a very different, and again, I'm not a lawyer, but as a non-lawyer reading it, you're like, wow, this is, you know, you, what you said, you look at it and it's just a very, it's, it, it is a different flavor and feel for what you'd see in some district court argument. Do you think the court uh, will agree that the non-classified documents are just as important to the criminal investigation as the classified documents? I don't even know that they'll say justice or that they'll make it a relative judgment one way or the other. I think what they'd say is, you know, whether or not that the executive has the, you know, in the context of doing what the executive does, investigating crimes, that it is, I would imagine, that the district court overstepped in doing some of the, you know, granting some of the relief that it did and that it isn't appropriate given the separation of powers, that it is not within the district court's right to do what they did and throwing out a bunch of stuff. Now, again, whether that sort of like returns it to say you can't do any of this and, you know, restart something or do something, I just, you know, I don't know that it would, I don't know how this impacts the timing, but I do think it's pretty clear that what Canon has done has greatly outstepped the the role of the judiciary in, in Article Three in the context of um, Article Two powers. Yeah, well, so they, I would anticipate the Circuit Court to say something like that pretty strongly. Yeah, the Circuit Court already hinted at the argument of jurisdiction. I think they might rule that she didn't have jurisdiction to have this case in the first place. Might remand it back to the Reinhardt Court. Uh, and Reinhardt would be like, we don't need a special master. And, you know, <laughs> end of story. We'll see. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. But I think that the jurisdictional argument is going to be key uh, because I, I concur with what the 11th Circuit hinted at and what the DOJ is asserting. Judge Cannon never had jurisdiction in the first place. I, I don't know. Again, it's a question better asked of an attorney whether or not the circuit could throw out canon's jurisdiction altogether 
or whether it reasonably could be filed in her district. Yeah, well, Kai's could come back and say, well, then we argue anomalous jurisdiction instead of equitable jurisdiction. And they say, all right, well, we have to start all over again and listen to that argument. I mean, who who the hell knows how how this will will all go? Uh, Meanwhile, we've got the special master reviewing these documents. Uh, On what schedule yet? I don't know. Um, You you know, if if they go by... Uh, canon schedule it'll be mid-december uh so now it's kind of a race to see what gets done faster the appeal uh and how it comes out or the the special master review so i think that's kind of where we're at anyway yep i think that's right right. cool well i appreciate you sitting in for andrew today um my intrepid lawyer sunning himself in italy and eating probably all sorts of delicious foods um (laughs) we'll get there one day pete we'll get there one day we just got to keep working. Yeah, we just got to keep working. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, I appreciate your time today, everybody. We will be back with Clean Up on Aisle 45 next week. As you know, every Wednesday, I think Andrew might be out again. So, Pete, I might see if I can tap you to sit in and, and answer some more questions All when right. we get more uh, appeal information. Sounds good. All right, everybody. Until then, I've been Allison Gill and Pete Struck. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joel Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. They might be giants have been on the road for too long. Too long. And they might be giants aren't even sorry. Not even sorry. And audiences like the shows too much. Too much. And now they might be giants are playing their breakthrough album Flood. All of it. And they still have time for other songs. They're fooling around. Who can stop They Might Be Giants and their liberal rock agenda? Who? No one. This ad was paid for with somebody else's money. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said... Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped 
of kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.